Good. I'd like to request your attention, kind attention, with some thoughts on practice and what makes this practice possible. I would like to speak about the universal forms of empathy called Brahmavihara and um, the place they occupy in Buddhist teaching and in fact in the practice of mind cultivation. You will have heard talks about the Brahmavihara. Um, the term itself, although Indic, and the languaging of these Brahmavihara, uh, in this case is Buddhist, they actually speak of a universal experience. There's nothing particularly Indic or particularly Buddhist about these Brahmaviharas. They are speaking of a universal capacity of the human mind to be empathetic. Um, Brahmaviharas are uh, many things. They are uh, best seen on a number of, of different levels and I hope to disentangle some of these levels because obviously uh, anything of some complexity is likely to be either romanticized uh, or relegated to be simple meditation objects or uh, claimed by psychologists as emotions or uh, somehow instrumentalized for something to counteract something or to develop something. And truth be told, they're all this. They're all the above. Definitely they are all this. But there are a lot more than that. And it may make sense to disentangle some of this. So we're speaking of four qualities. Let's call them by name, metta, friendliness, benevolence, uh, karuna, compassion, uh, the capacity to resonate with pain in others, um, mudita, joy, sympathetic joy, the capacity to resonate with success and that which is good in other people's lives and upeka the equanimity uh, often combined with a emotional flavor of serenity so these four um, have become very famous in buddhist teaching they may not be the buddhists may not be the first to use them uh, you find these four named exactly that way uh, in the Jaina literature, uh, you find it in, they're named explicitly in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Um, so I cannot date these texts. Um, the Jaina Sutras may well be older. I would suspect that Patanjali is younger, but nevertheless, it's clear that they're not exclusively Buddhist. It just seems to be the case that Buddhists have a lot to say about them. Uh, um, and they have a lot to say about them because they are intrinsically connected to any notion of health, of well-being, of growth, of maturity, of realization, of freedom. Okay, That's important to bear in mind. There is no point in speaking about any of these things, health, well-being, growth, maturity, realization and freedom, if they if we speak of these of these states devoid of referring to forms of empathy yeah this is very very crucial i tell you this uh, this wasn't clear to me when i started this practice when i started this practice it was all about meditation and meditation was about becoming still and you know kindness that was that's what the stuff people did who couldn't meditate you know <laughs> This was the soft option for people who couldn't sit still. Uh, it, it doesn't... Uh, it has taken me a few years to figure this one out, maybe, um, because the, the combined factors of both uh, my connection to Buddhism has happened to two traditions who are particularly... Um, who are not particularly um, emphasizing these qualities in their mainline approach. One of them was Soto Zen, where um, I couldn't really find much meta practice. And the other one is the Thai forest tradition, which isn't exactly famous for, uh, with all its virtues, for an abundant reference to the four Brahma Viharas as an indispensable part of the Buddhist path. It has many virtues, and I'm grateful 
for that tradition and the milieu uh, of practice I have found there for many years. But I think it's fair to acknowledge that uh, the Brahmaviharas are not the strong suit of the forest tradition. Um, so I've come a long way. Uh, over the years, these Brahmaviharas have grown in importance in my own understanding of the teaching. And I come to uh, the point today where I think that uh, these four Brahmaviharas constitute what we could call our humanity. Basically, that's, that's rock bottom. That is our humanity. Um, and it is important to me to emphasize that uh, there is a part of these Brahma-viharas which is not detachable from my humanity. That it's something I cannot lose. Yeah. These Brahma-viharas is on their lowest sort of level, if you want, uh, with this somewhat crude stratification, that lowest uh, level uh, means that these Brahmaviharas are there as potentiality in my heart. They may be occluded, dormant, not developed, uh, buried, uh, denied, but they're not lost. I consider them to be undetachable from humanity. Um, that's an important one. That means I also don't have to work for them, I don't have to earn them, um, Obviously, it'd be useful if I trained them, if I acknowledged them, if I developed them. But even if I don't do this, they're still there. Yeah. They're still there, the potential of this heart to get in touch with other human beings in the differing tones of resonance, of friendliness, of resonating with pain, of resonating with joy, and of staying in relationship equanimously. Yeah. If you want, at rock bottom level, this is the, uh, let's call it unlosable or, I don't, you have things like captive screws in your country, yeah? you know, things which have bits attached that cannot be lost, okay? Even if it's loose or flappy a bit, you know, it doesn't actually get completely lost. You know? On the other hand, you know, the Brahma-viharas are the expression of an untainted mind, a mind completely freed. So if you know awakened people, this is how you should expect them to behave. You know, friendly, capable of empathy, joyous, and holding equanimity as the preferred place of their abiding. If your enlightened people do not displace these, display these things, I would have some doubts about their awakening. This is maybe an interesting little footnote here. The term Brahma-viharam actually is not the most commonly used in the old Pali text. The most commonly used term is called Appamanya, the measure, the immeasurables. Yeah. But the Brahma-vihara get their name. Vihara means abode a place to live, the state of Bihar has its name from that uh, word. It's where things dwell, where somebody dwells. And if you dwell like Brahma, then you dwell like one of the deities in the Indian pantheon, which the Buddhists have kindly taken over. You know, Buddhists have been doing some very interesting work with deities. They said, yes, yes, here you are, you're important, thank you very much, but we park you now in a side <laughs> altar. We subject you uh, to impermanence and you have very little of a role in when it comes to awakening but we kind of we venerate you you're here and it's important that you're here yeah. so brahma is a, um, a luminous deity and one of the things that uh, identifies brahma is that he is without hate if you have had a, a Greek or a Christian or a Jewish upbringing, then you're probably familiar with God or gods that are occasionally showing righteous indignation or divine wrath or something like that. And this is precisely what distinguishes Brahma from other gods. He does not do that. He is not wrathful. Yeah. He is profoundly freed of hate. So that's why he is the expansive element of light is one of his... Uh, trademarks and his uh, inexhaustible kindness and friendliness pervasive is that he's also the guy to whom we owe that the buddha actually started teaching because when the buddha felt his realization was um although profound 
he felt that he he would find little audience for this because what he had found was counter to popular liking counter to popular understanding and counter to popular inclination and he was uh, on the verge of not teaching and saying you know this would not work and it would be cumbersome for me and it, it is said that at that moment brahma sahampadi turned up in front of him and said look you know displayed all his splendor and said bowed and said look uh, please do not follow that thought, uh, awakened one, but instead give yourself over to teaching, sacrifice your life to teaching, for there are beings with just little dust in their eyes, for whom such a teaching as yours uh, will make the difference. Yeah. So this Brahma character has a, a few roles to play. A, he's a name giver for our uh, Brahma Viharas, our abodes, our divine abidings, and he is also instrumental for actually having, uh, I wouldn't say coaxed, but definitely encouraged the Buddha into starting his disquisition. So these Brahma-viharas, on one level, as unlosable, undetachable qualities of the human heart. On the other level, you have the Brahma-viharas as the expression of a completely freed mind uh, that is expansive, that is uh, grand-hearted, and that is no longer under the influence of greed, of hatred and delusion. And in between, you have two other layers, and it's about these two other layers I would like to speak uh, tonight most, most, uh, with more detail. These two other layers are quickly named um, on a sort of second layer from the bottom, you could think of these Brahma-viharas as virtues. They are things to be practiced. Okay, A virtue is something you can do. It's something you can train. That's the big thing about virtues. That you can recognize them, if not in yourself, then at least in others. You can affirm them, you can strengthen them, you can develop them, you can train in them. Yeah? So much of Buddhist teaching, much of this whole mind training program <laughs> is about exactly that. It's about cultivation. The word is bhavana, calling into being, sustaining while it is there, and strengthening it. Yeah. This cultivation is the big, big project. And in many ways, uh, this is the most hopeful message B Buddhism uh, brings, if you look. Um, you know, something like the mindfulness movement hinges on this notion. If you look at um, no, William James wrote the very beautiful and intuitive chapter on attention in his Principles of Psychology. So, a uh, wonderful chapter, and he, he says some very uh, trenchant things about the necessity of attention, the usefulness of attention, uh, how it is important to um, connect things you already know with things you don't yet know. And then he at some point concludes that he basically thinks that uh, the capacity, your capacity to attend is something of a given. Yeah? So you either have it or you don't. You either you have it to a certain degree and that certain degree you're basically settled with. Yeah? And that's, I think, where very powerful the Buddhist message comes in and says, no, uh, it, you're not settled with a given amount of something that you have been bestowed and now you have to live and make do with this. Yeah? He says you can actually identify its nutriments. You can identify where it occurs in your life. And then from there onward, you can strengthen this. You can learn to look on what it feeds. And then you can start consciously feeding it. You can learn to look what is detrimental to its growth. And you can start weeding that stuff. Yeah? And I think that's really one of the major messages is that we are not settled with the minds we feel we have been settled with so often. Yeah. We can grow, we can cultivate, we can learn. We are not condemned to repeat the blunders, the mistakes, to you know, um, endlessly rehearse our failures and our uh, degrees of helplessness we often encounter. So, uh, these Brahma-viharas are uh, no exception to this. And th that second level of the Brahma-vihara says, look, this is a training you can take up. 
That training begins very simply. The, uh, the most easy way to do this is to enunciate the wish, these Brahma-viharas as wishes. Yeah? May you be well, may you be happy, may you be free from suffering. Uh, may you not be parched from the good fortune in your life. Uh, and for the fourth one, it's not a wish, but it's a contemplation of um, action and consequence of action. So the contemplation for the fourth of these Brahma-viharas, the one of Upeka, of equanimity, not a wish, but it is a acknowledgement that there are things you can do and there are things you can't immediately do. There are things you can uh, immediately influence and there are things you can't immediately influence. There are boundaries. There is responsibility. There is conditionality at work. So the contemplation and the acknowledgement of this, this is important for therapists in here, okay? If you don't know this, the answer is called burnout, okay? Not knowing boundaries means you're, you're either going into a paralysis of helplessness or you, you burn yourself out. You know. Helping professions particularly feel that uh, very strongly. So these virtues are to be cultivated. And this cultivation begins with the clarity of an enunciated wish. I want to say that particularly for the men who sometimes feel that this teaching is less accessible to them than to women. You do not need to feel an effusive form of friendliness to practice friendliness, okay? This begins with intention. The practice of these Brahma-viharas is a practice not of emotional effusiveness, it's a practice of intentionality. You can, when you feel not friendly, intend to act friendly, to speak friendly. Yeah. If you do cultivate that intention, your um, impulses the other way will be much more short-lived. They will maybe still erupt, very likely they will erupt for quite a while, but they will be short-lived. They can no longer take root. And gradually your intentions will bear fruit. It is by such intentionality that you prime the mind. In fact, you don't need to do this. All you need to do is to uncover some of the first layer of these Brahma-viharas. I believe that the human being has a heart that is primed with these Brahma-viharas. Maybe buried, maybe occluded, but it is primed with them. If we clear the debris, if we remove the detritus, if we uh, take away the you know, the dust or whatever covers it, um, then underneath there we have access to these qualities. And then we can train them. We can affirm them. We can associate with people who exude them. We can begin to resemble those people. We can begin to feel when it feels that way. And we can say we can have joy when it starts to feel that way. We can acknowledge when it doesn't feel that way and acknowledge, okay, this is the wrong direction. I want to go the other direction. So let us look at some of those. The um, metta comes from the word friend, maitri, Sanskrit, uh, mita, friend. It's important to see the kindness in there and the benevolent benevolence in there. This is something about an unconditional benevolence, something that says, I see the good in you. I recognize the good in you. And it's completely selfless. Uh, greed also sees the good in you with certain appropriateness. Yeah. Uh, oh, you're really good at that. I see your qualities. I want to harness your skills for my corporation. You know, what's your price? Can, you know, can I get you? Can I enlist you? Mm. Uh, Meta does that and it refers to something entirely unworldly in another being. It's when we meet each other on the level of friendliness and benevolence, we speak to something, it's spoken in a very personal way to me, but it speaks to something that is not personal at all. It's not part of my persona. I cannot 
instrumentalize that which you speak to when you speak to me in meta as my self. I cannot do that. It's something completely transpersonal. It's something that is both particular and yet it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to my humanity. In many ways we can say that the, these Brahma-viharas are both inherent and they are boundless. Yeah? They are expressions of an ultimate non-separativeness. If we connect with each other on the level of these Brahma-viharas, we feel that we are not separate. Conversely, and this is something uh, I assume you have grown up in, in a highly individualistic culture like I have. Conversely, if we are uh, identified with the personality position, then this feels usually very lonely and isolated and uh, alienated even. So there's a profound connection there between the lack of Brahma-viharas and our sense of isolation and alienation. Uh, the sort of estrangement so many of us feel when we're amidst people and feel like we still don't belong, however many there are. Yeah. There's something really profound in this. And this um, Buddhist teaching has this very clear that when the mind is in a state of Brahma-vihara, and when that state is deepened, when the mind is saturated in that, then we are most aware of being connected to others. We are most aware of our, the non-separative nature of our existence. Um, in a sort of classical text form, this is uh, a Brahma-vihara that is strengthened by deep meditative stillness. Then it has become expansive. In fact, it has be even become boundless, apamanya. That's what it means. My Brahma-vihara, strengthened with stillness of mind, profound stillness of mind, has means it's so pervasive and expansive that I, it does not see any more boundaries. You know? That's a powerful, powerful state. And in the sort of Buddhist psychology, <coughs> they are all rated very highly. They're, they're all given credit to be uh, useful. There's a telling text where the Buddha speaks to his son and uh, encourages him to practice meditation uh, amongst other things also on these Brahma-viharas. And he tells them, you know, when you cultivate friendliness, thereby you will overcome ill will and malevolence. When you cultivate Rahula, cultivate compassion, Karuna, and you will overcome aggressiveness and cruelty. Cultivate sympathetic joy, and you will overcome discontent. Now, now this is a message. I would have liked to be given this message when I was tell. 10, how to overcome discontent. When you cultivate upeka, when you over cultivate equanimity, thereby uh, you will overcome resistance and reluctance. That's also a teaching I would have loved. How to overcome resistance and reluctance. I, I spent much of my adolescence in, in a pose of dissidence, sort of. Uh, classic oppositional strategies, you know, g give me an enemy and then that gives me a cause. It was a question of honor to always be preferably on the losing side. It was just, it was just bad taste to defend a cause which had any likelihood of being winning, okay? <laughs> yeah. I would have loved to hear when I was 10 how to overcome reluctance and resistance, and how to overcome discontent. Yeah? These are teachings that still touch my heart. Um, there's still enough discontent in my life today <laughs> that I'm grateful for this teaching, and I remind myself of these teachings. And uh, uh, these Brahma-viharas obviously have a powerful transformative effect, yeah? because they are literally at the heart of our experience. They are what colors the chitta. So I spoke about, about the chitta uh, the other day, and in many ways these are the most noble expressions, uh, the most noble uh, affective expressions of that chitta, when it is resonant with friendliness, when it is empathetic with uh, that which is painful in lives of others, when it is capable of a profound joy. Sometimes when we see the success and the goodness in other people's lives, our primary reaction is not necessarily joy, but envy, you know. Why is she, you know. 
uh, I would have deserved that more or uh, don't they see what she is really like or you know we we recognize that our first response to seeing goodness or seeing others being successful is not necessarily grand-hearted yeah there's something in us that collapses into a comparing mind yeah I think Christina touched on it last night briefly in the context of Papancha. There is a very powerful uh, thing Buddhists call uh, conceit. Many, many forms of conceit. The the English word doesn't quite do justice to it. Uh, It's it's basically an investment in the comparing mind. Here in the West, conceit usually is the superiority position. I look down on you. Uh, I think myself superior to you. Buddhists are a lot more radical in in framing notions of conceit. They say, irrespective of whether you take the inferiority position and elevate somebody to be superior to you, um, whether you take the superiority position, look down on somebody, or even take an egalitarian position, yeah? A good old democratic egalitarian position still is a form of conceit because as long as you're making statements about your own self on the basis of comparison with another, you're basically trapped. You know? You're ending up with some sort of self-construct. And this self-construct uh, has major problems. One of them is it doesn't exist. Yeah? And because it doesn't exist, it needs an awful lot of maintenance. So it... Yeah? <laughs> And because it needs an awful lot of maintenance, I need to worry continually that it can be threatened, endangered. I need to shore up energy. I need to, you know, uh, I need to pump. I need to, you know, there's a lot of leakage there. So um, this quality of conceit is something that is profoundly counteracted by these four Brahma Viharas. Any single one of them helps undo some of this because it connects me with something that I share with all beings. It connects me with a a level of non-separativeness, which I might find threatening even. I quite like to be separate on occasions, you know, and definitely there are many places I like to be very separate. Um, And um, this is not something we can handle, you know, in one go. So the Buddha has understood that the human heart needs forms of cultivation. The first of these forms of cultivation is acknowledging wish, intentionality. I wish you well. If I enunciate that wish, gradually that wish will bear fruit. It will become a climate of mind. It will become a quality of mind that becomes expansive. There are many good effects of this quality. There is no secret, for example, that uh, metta is something that enables meditation. Um, It is very clear that it is the happy, the gladdened mind that is coalescing into stillness. It's one of the prerequisites of a mind to become still, that it has access to a certain degree of gladness and happiness. Suttas are very, very clear about this. If you have... um, you know, if you find comfort in uh, reading such statements, uh, then uh, there are plenty of statements that make it very abundantly clear. Sukhinochi tang samadhyati, the mind that is happy is the mind that finds samadhi. Conversely, um, the mind that is um, tinged by the vinegar of aversion uh, is a mind that does not find stillness. You know, there's nothing as fragmenting as um, aversion, for example. You know, discontent, bitterness, uh, aggressiveness, uh, all this sours the mind and in many ways prevents it from becoming still, becoming stable. So probably because of this uh, the buddhist commentarial tradition has made much of these brahma viharas in terms of meditative development and this is maybe the third level of these brahma viharas is that meditation states are fostered meditative deepening is fostered by conscious accessing of these states so the commentarial tradition in the have 
almost exclusively relegated these Brahma Viharas to be meditative objects to help us bring about stillness. Yeah. One of the greatest commentarial works in Theravada tradition uh, has a big, big chapter on how to use the Brahma Vihara teaching as a teaching to bring about meditative stillness. That is true, that is valid, that is useful, but it's n- <laughs> it's obviously a slight reduction from the original vision that these Brahma Viharas are practices for the human realm, that these Brahma Viharas are relational qualities. That's an important thing. Yeah. If I just turn something into a meditative state and make it a meditative object, it may sound as if it has nothing to do with my relationships or the rest of my life. And while I have no doubt that Brahma Viharas have something to do with meditative development and uh, enable profound states of stillness, I would rather not like to lose them in the other areas of human life. So it's uh, good to recognize that these Brahma-viharas are practices besides wishing. We're also encouraged to spend time actually enunciating these practices in our daily life, in our relationships. In fact, there's an interesting connection, uh, little-known connection, where these four Brahma-viharas as individual qualities are connected with uh, four social virtues called the four bases of social harmony. And metta is connected with generosity, liberality. Uh, Karuna is uh, connected with helpfulness, performing uh, beneficial conduct for others or conduct beneficial for others. Mudita sympathetic joy is connected with friendly and endearing speech now that's an interesting one isn't it yeah and equanimity upeka is connected with a sense of um, engaged impartiality impartiality as a virtue as a social virtue there's an interesting connection there between these four brahma viharas this individual trainings and the social manifestation of these qualities. I think there is a lot to be said. This is maybe not the moment and I am maybe not the person, uh, but there will be a time when we need to think about what the political consequences are of individual Buddhist practices. Uh, We're shying away from this. I shy away from this. I don't know how it is for you, but um, there may be a time when we need to start thinking about this. What does this actually translate into as political statements or as political vision to live by these virtues, to live by these teachings, to own socially what I have understood about this mind privately on my cushion. There may be a time when we need to think about this. These Brahma-viharas are... Let me go through, I've stayed basically at metta, let me go further with uh, compassion. The old word for compassion is anukampa, that means to tremble along with. It makes it very clear what this is. I am making a space in this heart here. I open something up so that whatever you feel can come in here and I begin to resonate with what you feel so that what you feel is uh, finding a resonance body in me. Yeah. I'm not shying away from your pain. And my capacity to hold your pain, this is an important bit, is not just resonant, it's not just empathetic, it is coupled with a profound wish to alleviate your, sa- your pain, your suffering. I am under the impression that this second Brahma-vihara, compassion is probably the most profound connectedness I can experience to other people. Um, It is in many ways that which takes me the fastest from my I position to connect with another being. Uh, It doesn't need even a shared language. It doesn't need, like all of these Brahma-viharas, they don't need a shared creed, belief system, 
pigmentation of my skin, religious vocation, not even a shared language, uh, not a shared culture. They connect with all beings. Yeah. They connect with all beings. And compassion is maybe the one that connects us fastest and most immediately. To connect with someone else's pain is deeply effective in acknowledging this other being's humanity. The commentaries tell us that we should practice uh, loving-kindness or metta, the friendliness to overcome aversion and to overcome ill-will. And that is to some degree true, but I have found it is only partially true. Uh, in many ways, much more effective to overcome aversion is compassion. If I can recognize the pain in your life, if I can re thereby restore your humanity, uh, this is for me a lot more effective in overcoming any aversive and aggressive tendencies in my heart. Um, I see that the meta practice is a brilliant prophylactic. You know, it is an excellent way of cultivating non-aversion when I happen not to be averse. As an interventive strategy, it doesn't seem to be terribly effective. You know, to convince my mind when it is averse that it actually is friendly or loving is a difficult thing. I've always thought of this a little bit like, you know, forgive a Swiss to say that, um, a cow pad, you know, a cow pad with sugar coating. Yeah. <laughs> it is sugar coating, but it remains a cow pad underneath. So the idea of counteracting a state of aversion with loving kindness has never been terribly convincing to me, maybe because my aversions may be particularly um, robust. Um, but I, I, I have a suspicion that this isn't just me, that uh, much more effective for me to counteract aversion is actually to connect with the pain in somebody else's life or to help to contemplate that this other being has experienced losses, has experienced failure, has experienced embarrassment, has experienced rejection, has experienced abandonment, has experienced, you know, depletion. In many ways that connects me much, much quicker with the humanity in my uh, interlocutor or in my other. Yeah. Um, so, it's maybe no, no wonder. Other people have found that compassion is one of the profoundest uh, ways to connect with others. Uh, Schopenhauer has written a paper about uh, ethics being founded on the capacity of the human heart to resonate with others' pain. Uh, he didn't become famous for that paper. He, his compassion didn't quite last to the very end of the paper. <laughs> it was, I don't know what you call this, it was... Um, it was a paper he wrote to win a prize yeah, by the Danish Academy, I believe. And towards the end of his paper, brilliant, short, he's an excellent stylist, a really excellent thinker. By the end of this paper, he lost his plot a bit and started to rant about his pet enemy, which was Hegel. <laughs> and <laughs> it was a famous philosopher at this time. You know, they both taught in Berlin for a while. And Schopenhauer insisted on holding his lectures at the very same time that Hegel did, so that students had to choose between him and Hegel, because he thought Hegel was a fraud. Um, um, and um, Hegel seemed to win. Uh, Schopenhauer retired. He had private fortune. He didn't need to teach, but he, after a few years he gave up and went back to Frankfurt. And uh, that was that. But he, was, he had a lifelong aversion against Hegel. And even in his wonderful paper where he convincingly uh, outlined the foundation of ethics on the basis of compassion. Um, some compassion was <coughs> flaking off at the end. <laughs> anyway, he didn't make the price. <laughs> but the paper is still there, and it's still um, very readable. So I, I say that because other people coming from very different places, and um, I'm not sure whether... Uh, Schopenhauer is a prime example of Brahma Viharas, a man who found his uh, his uh, 
who wrote his diaries in Greek so that his householder couldn't read it. Um, even he, uh, with the depth of his uh, thinking, has come to the conclusion that that which is affectively connecting us to others is a more reliable foundation for ethics than, say, the, the Kantian notion, uh, which seems a little more cognitive, that I should not do to others what I don't want them to do to myself, and that you know, on this basis I should act ethically and compassionately. Uh, I convince, I, I find the, the theory that ethics finds its roots in compassion a lot more convincing than uh, it finds its roots in a cognitive understanding that um, I preferably not act in a way uh, like I would not have that other people act towards me. Um, while I think this is true, I don't think this is a, a strong a basis for ethic as is compassion. So compassion is the capacity to resonate with the difficult, the painful, the suffering in others. And it is also, and this takes it beyond mere empathy, this is also a force that wishes to alleviate that. That means specifically I'm trying to take the suffering away from somebody else or I try to ameliorate his or her condition. If I cannot do that, I try at least to comfort if I cannot even comfort, I at least try no, not, not to let them alone with the suffering. Yeah? In, uh, this is a powerful position and it's probably the most connecting virtue in human beings. I believe that much of what we call civilization is due to our capacity to compassionately connect and take care of each other when we experience the existential um, vicissitude of pain, of suffering, of loss, of, you know, in its many, many, many forms. So reaching out to care, yeah, to care, I think, is a profound response to the experience of the suffering in another's life. That care, that reaching out, uh, in many ways, is at the at the heart of what I believe is growth, what I believe is growth in relationship, what I believe is um, the learning that comes from me being with you, you know, because I can learn from you, through you, with you, um, what happens to me when you are here. In many, many ways, if I try to subtract what I have learned with others and from others and through others and together with others, uh, if I try to subtract that from the things I believe to know, there is nothing left. Yeah. We learn in relationship. That's our first movement. I relate to you to become more aware of what's happening with me. I need you to find out about me. Yeah. I am told, uh, as somebody who doesn't have children, I am told that this is the primary movement. You know, it's the infant raising its gaze. Yeah, seeking seeking the gaze of a mother, seeking the gaze of the other to connect. Yeah, there are people who have spoken about this with greater eloquence than I can ever hope to emulate. Uh, French uh, Lithuanian philosopher called Levinas is probably the most famous one of them, who has spoken about both the gaze and the other meeting the other, and the humanity that uh, takes place when we enter into a relationship where we are meeting the other in his or her otherness rather than trying to imposing our perspectives, our views, our needs, our interpretations on the other. When we let the other stand in his radical otherness yeah, rather than appropriating him or her and trying to make sense of the other in my terms. This is a powerful moment. Compassion is one of the moments that makes this possible. Yeah. It's me touching a pain that reaches through you into my own heart. And I affirm this, not because a pain is good, but because it somehow connects us. It tells me something about what we share, what we are both subject to in this world. And it's very difficult to uphold petty uh, anxieties, it's very difficult to uphold uh, 
petty grievances in the face of such a truth you know, that reaches through both of our hearts, that touches both of us. Mudita is very less famous. It seems to be more difficult to access, access as a spontaneous emotion, as a response when we meet others. And yet it is a very powerful quality. It has its roots in softness. Uh, one of the roots is the word mudita, pamodati joy, but there is a word in there for softness, mudu, pliability. Softness is a powerful concept and it means as I am capable of resonating with what is painful in your life, I'm capable of resonating what is good, successful, and I, I, I can appreciate, I can celebrate, I can resonate with that. It's probably the one that we have least encouragement in our society. You know, it seems more difficult to resonate with the goodness in other people's life in a spontaneous way that we could resonate with others' pain. Um, it somehow seems that I need to be closer to somebody to really be joyous about their successes. Yeah. While the pain seems to travel farther, the joy somehow seems to be um, having less... Uh, the trajectory seems less, uh, less far-reaching. Um, Buddhist uh, psychology is insistent that this is a very crucial quality and often I believe one we sorely lack uh, the capacity to resonate, appreciate, um, experience gratefulness is a tenet that you find in many many religions for example it's no, no secret that obviously the human mind retains bad stuff better than good stuff yeah? And because that is the case, because we have a sort of negativity bias, um, yeah, which evolutionary makes sense. Yeah, you eat bad mushrooms, you survive the experience, and you're going to remember those mushrooms. You're going to tell your kids, "Be careful with mushrooms. Get them checked." You know, it makes sense from an evolutionary point of view to remember bad things better than good things. From a point of view of awakening and happiness, it doesn't make sense at all. Yeah. Why should I forget a hundred good mushroom dishes and remember one bad one yeah? more clearly? It doesn't make sense in terms of happiness. So I think religions of all uh, color have always understood this and have encouraged human beings to uh, be grateful, to practice gratitude, to practice celebration, to practice jubilation, to practice appreciation. Yeah? Uh, I understand this as a counteragent to the human tendency to settle on negative experiences. And as we get older, you know, we all have plenty of raw material for bad, bad experiences. You know, the the pool grows immensely. Yeah, I have experienced countless horrors in my life. You know, and uh, even more horrors that haven't happened. <laughs> you know, but I some of them have happened, and I can. Re warm them up and go, you know, into deep, deep sense of deprivation, indignation, loss. Uh, from below my kidneys, I can pull up some deep grievances and I could dwell on this and I'm sure you could. And it's a lot more difficult to just resonate with the goodness in this life and in other lives. So it's no wonder that mudita is a virtue, um, well, one of the things to be profoundly cultivated. Upeka, the verb comes. The verb means upaikshati to look across, to look over and across. Um, speaking of two things, it speaks of an impartiality and of a serenity. Yeah. It means I am standing in my place while I reach out to you. It, it has a, a, a quality of equipoise, a quality of profound balance and centeredness. Um, one of the most misunderstood qualities in Buddhist teaching, um, confusingly it also, uh, a very similar term is used for indifference, which um, happens to be it's near enemies. These Brahmaviharas, they all have near and far enemies. So the near enemy is the enemy that waits 
attacks you right outside of your house where you still feel safe, you know, it just kind of falls over you and uh, attacks you. The far enemy is when you go very, very far away, the mountains on the horizon, that's where the far enemy lurks. So um, the near enemy of Upeka is indifference. Very similar in flavor, but minus the relationship aspect. I am very equanimous because I don't care. Because you don't matter. You know, I can be very, very peaceful and equanimous because I basically don't bother with you. Yeah? And from a Buddhist point of view, this is precisely the opposite. This is the near enemy of Upeka. The far enemy of Upeka is greed and ill will. The near enemy of metta is greed. The far enemy of metta is malevolence. It's ill will. It's the direct opposite. Wishing somebody bad. Yeah. She deserves this. Yeah. Serves her right. Yeah. This is ill will. The near enemy of karuna is... Mm, distraught sense of being distraught it's the kind of the empathy without the competence and your own resources it's just sharing the emotional quality of pain without the connected wish to resolve to relieve you from pain it's like somebody jumping into a hole with somebody somebody's lost in a hole and the other one just jumps in and shares his misery yeah I think you have a wonderful word for that, commiseration. Um, the far enemy of karuna is cruelty. It's, uh, there are many forms of cruelty. We probably don't admit to the extent of cruelty in our own lives. Uh, sometimes cruelty uh, takes the form of commission and sometimes it takes the form of omission. Um, there are many flavors of cruelty that are quite um, discreet. You know, just not responding to an email or to a, a greeting or to an apology or, you know, you just wait a little bit. Not many different ways, distancing techniques, certain aloofness, um, non-acknowledgement, gentle invalidation. You know, there are many subtle forms how we can... Uh, completely legal forms of cruelty, completely uh, conventionally acceptable forms of cruelty. Uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, torture and uh, such like. They're uh, just a heart that contracts away the refusal to acknowledge relationship, the refusal to acknowledge that I feel what's happening for you, that I recognize by your facial expression that you're sad. All this can take the form of cruelty. So um, we may be more cruel than we want to admit to ourselves. The near enemy of mudita is the sort of the party spirit. I don't actually care what you celebrate. I just want to, I'm just in here for the beer, okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I just want to have fun. Yeah. Um the suttas speak very uh colorfully about this and they say, you know, where is their song singing? Where is their drumming? Where is their dancing? You know. It's the spirit that wants to go and just share in the fun without actually connecting to the reason for the celebration. Yeah. And the uh, far enemy of mudita is discontent. It's um the sourliness, the, um, the, the non-willingness to go and open and be soft. Yeah. There is much, I don't know, I come from a society which has cultivated this quality. Swiss are famous for being dyspeptic. Um, <laughs> I, I have also personally walked many hours flirted a lot with Arati. Arati is one of the daughters of Mara. He is also sons in other traditions. Uh, but this one is a daughter of his and she is called Discontent. And um, I believe I have walked many, many a mile in the arm of Arati. And it is a powerful condition. 
Um, discontent can be quite effective. You know, we can get things done with discontent. We can be quite um, speedy, discontent. We, there are many tempting features of discontent. Uh, it takes away a lot of my resonance. It takes away a lot of distraction. I'm really focused on what I think is the problem and what vexes me. And I apply, you know, the focused form of my discontent in Trans transmuted into energy and efficiency. So there's a lot of a culture of discontent where I come from, and maybe maybe it's more widespread than just uh, maybe it doesn't stop at this, the Swiss border. I'm uh, so Arati has a, a powerful is a powerful enemy, and it's maybe worth mentioning in that context that much of desire comes from having its roots in this content. So much of the tanha, much of the sense of deficiency, much of the sense of wanting and seeking uh, behavior in our lives has its roots not just in the sheer anticipation of sensory gratification, but in the trying to get away from discontent. Yeah. Much of our uh, consumption behavior uh, probably finds its root in forms of discontent rather than in the gratification we get from getting what we try to get. Yeah. It's more like getting away from something rather than getting what we get. There are four images from the commentaries I want to end with. These four images are the images invariably of a mother in her relationship to a child or to her children and metta is likened to a mother that is in love with her newly born child that is completely enwrapped uh, with her attentional focus uh, following every move every expression uh, of her child and uh, in a state of profound care profound and unconditional welcoming and holding and bonding, yeah. I think a beautiful image. Karuna is likened to a mother that cares for her sick child, that does anything to bring help and remedy the child's suffering. Uh, that may be sacrificing, sacrificing sleep, it may be um, finding help, it may be doing things that the child doesn't want because the mother knows this is what the child needs and although it is not pleased by it, I'm willing to go against the child's explicit wishes. Um, it um, may be entailing lots of effort, lots of patience. And um, the, the attitude of profound care, even in the face of not necessarily knowing how to, the willingness to stay in relationship even when I can't fix you yeah, um, is a profound skill yeah, and I think very beautifully expressed in this. The third image for Mudita, for sympathetic joy, is the mother celebrating the successes of her child. So, first steps, tying shoelaces, getting a college degree. It's not strictly canonical, but you get the gist. Yeah? So it's celebrating the growth, the development, the stages of uh, maturity and, uh, and rejoicing in this. The fourth image is the mother of an adolescent uh, child. <laughs> Equanimity seems to be the necessary quality for this. There is a lot of care, and yet uh, the mother knows that she can't make choices for her child. Even if she would make better choices than her child, she knows that by doing so, she would weaken her child's capacity to make such choices. Yeah. She needs to trust that the child has internalized her values and her skills and what she has taught him or her. And uh, at the same time is in this poignant position where she has to let go and still hold on in care, yeah, knowing that she cannot make the choices for her child. 
I think these images may be a little romanticized, but I do think they hold enough illustrative power to to be useful. So, if you want these four Brahma Viharas very very simply, in a nutshell, you could have them as exclamations. And these exclamations would run something like this. For the first one, for Metta, you would just have this exclamation, may all beings be well. Yeah, may they really thrive and be well. For the second one, you would say something like, how unhappy human beings are. Yeah. How unhappy, how suffering human beings are. For the third one, you would say, rejoice with human beings. Yeah. And for the fourth one, he would probably some say something like, <laughs> human beings. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Let me end. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.